Welcome to Mary's Cup of Tea, the self-love podcast for women. I'm your host, Mary Jolkowski, an author, speaker, and all-around self-love advocate. And this is the podcast that will inspire you to love yourself. Hello, self-lover. Before we dive into today's podcast episode, I want to make sure you know about my two books on self-love. If you're struggling with body image or self-acceptance, then I highly recommend you check out my first book, The Gift of Self-Love. It's a comprehensive workbook to help you build confidence, recognize your worth, and learn to love who you are. Thousands of people have this book and the five-star reviews are so amazing. They give me so much life. So I hope that this is something that can help you too. You can get it wherever books are sold by searching for The Gift of Self-Love or go to my website, maryscupoftea.com slash book. After releasing The Gift of Self-Love and reading all your positive feedback, I realized that we really needed something to keep us going every single day. So not a deep dive workbook, but maybe like a micro dose of self-love in your daily life, which is why I wrote 100 Days of Self-Love. It's a guided journal with, you guessed it, 100 prompts that cover so many areas of life, including body, identity, purpose, emotions, mindset, relationships, and more. So you can really think of it as a metaphor multivitamin, something to keep you going, or as I like to say, growing on your self-love journey. You can get this journal wherever books are sold as well by searching for 100 Days of Self-Love or go to maryscupoftea.com slash journal. It's my mission to share all the self-love tea with you, so I hope that both my books and this podcast can do just that. Today's guest has been on my dream pod guests vision board for quite some time, and I'm so excited that we were finally able to have this conversation with Dr. Jen Gunter. Dr. Jen Gunter, who's at Dr. Jen Gunter on Instagram, you have to follow her because she is just so cool and fun and spicy. And aside from being a very well-researched, long-time practicing physician, more specifically obstetrician and gynecologist, aka OBGYN, she's also just really fun to follow for hot takes and feminism and empowerment and debunking so many myths pertaining to women's health. So Dr. Jen Gunter is an internationally best-selling author, obstetrician, and gynecologist with more than three decades of experience as a vulvar and vaginal disease expert. Considered the world's most famous and outspoken gynecologist, her New York Times and USA Today best-selling books, The Vagina Bible and The Menopause Manifesto, has been translated into 25 languages. Her new book, Blood, is all about the science, medicine, and mythology of menstruation, which we talk about in this episode. In case you're still not convinced by how cool she is, she's also the host of Jen Splaining, a CBS slash Amazon Prime video series that highlights the impact of medical misinformation on women and the recipient of the 2020 NAMS Media Award from the North American Menopause Society. Her 2020 TED Talk, Why Can't We Talk About Periods, which I will link for you in the description, it received more than 2 million views in the first six months, all well-deserved, leading to the launch of her popular podcast on the TED Audio Collective, Body Stuff with Dr. Jen Gunter. In this conversation, Dr. Jen dives into menstruation misinformation, debunking a lot of myths and taboos and bogus claims that are out there about periods. So we talk about why cramps happen, for example, 
The second half of this conversation gets particularly interesting because Dr. Jen clarifies and corrects a lot of claims that are floating around on the internet that are very popular and very easy to believe, but some of which might not be true or at the very least not have enough evidence to be confirmed true. So things like do menstrual cycles really sync up when you hang out with fellow menstruators? Does your period get rid of toxins? Is it some kind of a detox? Chiropractors and goop. Dr. Jen geeft us her hot take about those kinds of practitioners that call themselves functional medicine or alternative medicine, and really just bringing back some science into this branch of women's reproductive health that, because hasn't been studied for so long, is also a breeding ground for a lot of mis- and disinformation. And if you want to learn even more facts about menstruation, I highly recommend getting Dr. Jen's book, Blood. It's available wherever books are sold, and I'll also link it for you in the description. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy this period-positive conversation with Dr. Jen Gunter. Hello, Dr. Jen. Welcome to the Mary's Cup of Tea podcast. Hello. Thank you for having me. Can I just start off by saying that you're so cool? Well, online and I just met you <laughs> like <laughs> like this more so in real life but the way that you share yourself like the whole person that you are like your love for food and <laughs> shoes and <laughs> nature and I just love following you oh thank you and my $18 Zara shirt <laughs> which is fab and so on brand are you wearing any cool boots today I am. I'm wearing some actually really cool hand-stitched or stitched cowboy boots. They're like at the ankle and they have these beautiful flowers uh, stitched all over them. So, Ooh, I love those. Well, let's dive in to talk about blood, blood in the like period menstruation sense and also your book, Blood, which is over 400 pages long. Reading it, I kind of had a feeling that you could go on to write for like a thousand more pages. Is that true? Yeah. I mean, it was really a challenge to sort of where do I cull it? What do I include? What's enough? Because, you mm -hmm. know, one of the big issues is people get a little bit of information and it's not enough to help them sort through everything. And so how do you decide when enough is enough? Yeah. Well, the way you organized it was perfect because you can also flip through it and see like the topic that pertains to you. But I'm curious to know why this book and why now, because you've talked about, studied, written about reproductive health in many different ways. So I'm curious, like, why this one? Yeah. So part of it is I had signed a two book deal, so I had to come up with another book. But, you know, I had done the Vagina Bible and I'd written the Menopause Manifesto. So I thought, well, let's focus everything on menstruation and the menstrual cycle. And around the time that I was thinking about what this book would look like, it was you know, right after I'd finished book tour for the Menopause Manifesto. And this to me seemed to kind of coincide with the time where all the disinformation about COVID-19 vaccination and the menstrual cycle was really taking off online. And, you know, I would find myself getting tagged in posts or asked questions that people had just knew a bit more about the menstrual cycle. They would have known that whatever was being said was ridiculous and they should ignore that person. That seemed to really be a catalyst, that time about, you know, that disinformation about the vaccine with really where disinformation about the menstrual cycle online seemed to just take off exponentially. And so I just, that, that was like, okay, yeah, I, I got to do something about this. And so that really informed this book. 
Yeah. Well, it's perfect timing as always. And you talk about extensively how, in general, women's reproductive health is very under-researched and hasn't even begun to be researched until like the 70s, I think you mentioned. Yeah. Well, it, was in, it wasn't until 1993 that it became law for federal money in the United States that, you know, if you were going to do a study, you had to include women as well as men. I mean, obviously, if the study pertained to women, I mean, if it was about Viagra, then no, but, mm-hmm. but you know, that it had to contain women. And, you know, I was already graduated from medical school then. And so this idea that through all of history, medicine has really been medicine for men. And part of it is an absolute disinterest in women's health or the idea that you may have different physiology that's worthwhile studying. I mean, you don't know if things are different unless you actually do the study, right? And then the idea too that pharmaceutical companies obviously want to get get away with doing things the cheapest. And if you have people that are more homogeneous, it's easier to study them. And so reproductive physiology changes. Your hormone levels are changing every day and that throws a wrench into studies, right? So if you're trying to get in the cheapest, you don't want to study women, but that's why we need like federal regulations because if we don't force people to do things the correct way, it doesn't often happen. Yeah. And 30 years in science world can be Well, it can definitely bring a lot of advancements, but also because these advancements take time, 30 years in science world is like nothing. Right. I mean, I think that we're just now starting to see the benefits of having this legislation passed in the early 1990s, right? Mm -hmm. Because it takes a long time. You have to have bench research. You have to start to get any people who are interested in this. They have to get grants. So it all takes time. And so I think we're now sort of just beginning to be sort of at the, either the naissance of understanding more about reproductive physiology and how it affects everything. Yeah. And when we don't have science and conclusive evidence that leaves like a breeding ground for mis and disinformation and a lot of quackery to come into play and basically prey on the people who are looking for answers who can't find them in credible ways. Absolutely. There are gaps in medicine and there are people who take advantage of those gaps as opposed to filling them. And and it's a problem. And I think because of social media has basically allowed people to have free or almost free advertising, right? It really has changed the game in ways that are not always good for people. Well, if you were teaching sex ed to a group of 16-year-olds, and I don't know about the sex ed you got, but mine was terrible. I don't even remember anything useful besides the notorious condom on a banana. (laughs) (laughs) But regardless, if you were to teach that class, what would you want people, students, female, male alike, to know about periods? Yeah. So I would want people to know what's normal and what's medically concerning. I think that we see so many people who suffer with pain when they don't need to, or people who have very heavy periods and suffer with, you know, low blood counts, and they don't they don't know what they're experiencing is abnormal because nobody talks about it, or maybe they spoke to a doctor and were dismissed, right? So if you know what's normal, what's typical, it's a lot easier for you then to know if what's happening to you isn't. So I would want people to know about the normal biological experiences. I want them to know some of the basics about the hormone changes and about some of the most common conditions that affect the reproductive tract, for example, endometriosis or polycystic ovarian syndrome. And I'd want them to know also how to have pleasurable sex because I think that people might make different partner choices if like, wait a minute, this isn't actually like pleasurable, so why am I here? 
So I think that learning how your body works, I mean, the fact that we don't talk about how to have an orgasm, how to have good sex, what a good relationship is like leads a lot of people astray. I mean, certainly I didn't know what a good relationship was supposed to be like, right? So I think just learning more about it all as opposed to, I think for most people, sex ed is how to not get pregnant ed, right? With a heavy focus on you'll be somehow ruined for life if you do have sex. Like it's very... It's very unhelpful. It's very uninstructive. Yeah. I'm so grateful that I come from a relatively period positive household. Even my dad, he talked to me about periods before my mom did. (laughs) But recently, a few girlfriends of mine and I were talking about dads and periods. I have a friend whose father, growing up, she said until this day, if she's like staying over, he would wash like her period underwear just like, you know, rinse it out, throw it in the laundry for Mm -hmm. her, that kind of stuff, like while doing routine laundry. I shared this with a couple of friends of mine and they were appalled. Like, I remember the exact words my friend said was, I would rather cut off my toe than have my dad touch period underwear of mine or anybody else's, I'm sure. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, but you know what, if you had a nosebleed in the middle of the night and you got blood on your sheets, you wouldn't think it weird at all for your parent to be like, I'm so sorry you had a nosebleed. Let me help you out. You know, I think that it's so taboo in so many ways, which are so destructive, because if you can't talk about things, then the implication is it's shameful or it's bad or it's wrong. And again, that's one of those things that leads people to bad sources of information. Mm -hmm. When you put it in perspective with the nosebleed comparison in your TED Talk, that's when it clicked. And I'm like, no, it's, it's just not weird. We just live in a weird culture. Yeah. I mean, it's very, it's so bizarre that somehow menstrual blood is gross or scary or dirty, or it's a sign that your, your dad knows you have a vagina. I'm pretty sure he knows. (laughs) I'm pretty sure he knows. Hopefully he's not thinking about it, but you know what I mean? Like this concept that you are this biological person that has these parts, your parent should have a basic understanding of that. Mm -hmm. Do we know why cramps happen? Yeah, we we have a pretty good idea. It's primarily related to release of chemicals called prostaglandins. So when you menstruate, the lining of the uterus has to come off. And part of the way that happens is the connections have to dissolve and prostaglandins do that. They also, blood vessels open up because there's spasm that happens. And so the blood pushes the lining out. And so that's why there's blood along with, with the lining. And prostaglandins are also painful. And so like if I cut your skin, if I cut you, part of the reason it hurts is because of the release of prostaglandins. So the prostaglandins themselves cause pain. And then also your uterus cramps because that's how you stop bleeding, right? So you stop a nosebleed by pinching your nose. You've got bleeding on an elbow. You put pressure on your elbow. So that uterine contraction is painful and that's triggered by prostaglandins. And that that reduces blood flow to the uterus. That also increases pain. And so there's several different chemical pathways involved. And it's all triggered by the release of prostaglandins, which is why taking drugs like ibuprofen or naproxen, which are non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, and they block the production of prostaglandins, that's why they're so helpful for cramps and other kinds of pain. Mm. If I remember correctly, are prostaglandins, glandins? Mm-hmm. Prostaglandins, yeah. Is that somehow related to your favorite thing to talk about, which is period poops, the diarrhea? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So one of the other effects of prostaglandins is they can cause diarrhea. 
So 12% of people who menstruate also have menstrual diarrhea. I was one of those people. In fact, I mean, I had bad cramps, but I mean, my diary was just as bad. And honestly, if you had given me a choice to being getting rid of the cramps or getting rid of the diarrhea, I probably would have picked the diarrhea because sometimes I'd have to run to the bathroom like multiple times a day. And that wears on a person, right? There's going to be more than one person listening to this going, I thought I was the only one, right? Mm -hmm. Because I thought I was the only one. It wasn't until I got into medical school that I was like, wait a minute, because nobody talked about it. Do you think there's any merit to this concept of cycle syncing? Not like syncing up with the people around you, though we can also talk about that, but in terms of like having different energy levels throughout our cycles, because I will tell you, I plan this recording around my ovulation period because I find that I'm like more extroverted and more like happy to talk to people and just otherwise more energetic. Granted, I don't know if this is like a placebo effect that I know I'm ovulating. So I feel that way. But a couple months ago, I synced my work calendar with my period calendar. And I started kind of trying to plan events and avoid certain things when I am bleeding. Is there anything to that at all? Well, there isn't any data to support it. And unfortunately, there was quite a few people making money off of being like menstrual consultants, you know, Mm -hmm. selling businesses like that. And the period apps are also invested in people needing to track their cycles. So I would say there's been a rise in this discussion since the appearance of period apps. Mm-hmm. Whether it's true or not is a different thing. And I'm not saying it's not worth studying. Certainly mm-hmm. in the luteal phase, the second half of the cycle, that's when people develop PMS-like symptoms or mm-hmm. even people have PMDD. So absolutely, there will be a percentage of people who feel that they are not functioning as well during their luteal phase. But breaking it down any more than that, meaning like during ovulation or during the first three days of the cycle or things like that, I don't believe that we have any data to support that or refute it. But I would just caution where the information for that comes from and from people to be aware. I'm always Mm -hmm. like, so who profits from this? The other thing I always like to tell people is that most people until the advent of, you know, kind of period tracking, they didn't have a really good idea about when all this was happening. So we do know that, for example, when people are tracking their sleep, that often they don't sleep as well. So the act of tracking can also affect you. We know that with sleep and we don't know that yet with menstrual apps. Oh, you're saying the act of sleep makes people more anxious about sleep and thus they probably the act don't of tra- sleep as well. The act of tracking your sleep has an impact. Yeah. And in fact, like with a lot of the menstrual apps, they're very incorrect. Many of them at predicting when your next cycle is going to be. Yeah. And studies actually tell us that when a period comes, when it's not expected based on the app, a woman is more likely to blame her own cycle as being problematic than blame the algorithm that was incorrect. So with all of that in mind, it's hard to say because to study that, you'd actually have to be getting hormone levels either in the urine or the blood on on a regular basis to actually be able to track ovulation. Without that data, it's really hard to say anything. So like anything in life, if you feel better at one time or not, like I'm a morning person. I like to do mm-hmm. stuff in the morning. Do I need a biological reason for that? Do I need to know if it's my circadian rhythm? Or, no, I just like, I like to do things in the morning. And some people like to do things at the end of the day and other yeah. people don't care. And so I just think that we can't always get as granular as people want us to. And 
Instead, if you feel like you've performed better at a certain time of the month, great. Then you perform better at a certain time of the month. And there's probably also people who feel like there's no difference and everything Mm -hmm. in between. Yeah. Or people who like create the difference for themselves because of just a a confirmation bias of some sort. Yeah. And that's part of the problem, right? We're all subject to confirmation bias, every single one of us. And Mm -hmm. so, so studying this in a way that would give people like really clear results it's probably possible. Anything's possible with enough money. I always tell people research-wise, we're only limited generally by the funds. But certainly, absolutely, during the luteal phase, there are people who find that it's more difficult and because of PMS or PMDD. Yeah. What is PMDD again? Uh, Premenstrual mood dysphoric disorder. So like a more severe form of PMS. And so if somebody has PMS or PMDD, they might feel really good during ovulation because they know this is kind of one of their last, you know, a few good days before. So there can be other reasons, like how we feel and feeling good depends on more than just our hormones, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah. So there's a, you know, a lot of things. I'm always open to possibilities, but someone coming in and saying, you know, to a workplace, well, you should structure these meetings on this day. Like there isn't any science to support that. Yeah. Yeah. I get that. The only reason it, I want it to be true. Let me just Put it yeah, honestly. yeah. There's the lots reason, of things. Yeah. yeah, the reason, the big reason why I want it to be true is because I, I frequently think about how our world is constructed for men, by men and for men. And so the way like the nine to five schedule, like it seems to work so well for so many men. Whereas I just heard anecdotally from a lot of women that like in different times of the month, I'm like a totally different person. And of course, the luteal phase is one that's confirmed. There may be some like in between ebbing and flowing. And so I wanted it so, so badly to work. And I I think for me, it does make me feel good. But I was just curious to know if you know of any evidence for it. Yeah. I mean, I think that the the nine to five construct, the sort of work week is all like a downstream effect of capitalism, right? So mm-hmm. it's really all about getting the most out of workers. I think that one of the one of the major issues is for many women, especially at work, they're required to do more emotional labor than men. If you look in general, again, this is generals because there's obviously relationships that fall outside of this, but if you're partnered with a man in general, you're doing the bulk of the emotional labor in the relationship. If you have children, you're probably more likely to be, if not doing the childcare and also trying to work, right? But if your partner is sharing in the childcare, there are studies that show that they're more likely to do the fun stuff. So the woman gets to change the dirty diapers and clean the vomit off the clothes more likely. And the man gets to play on the floor with the Legos. And so you start to look at the emotional division of labor and that has a massive impact on people as well. But, you know, I think how we're thinking about people and how they function. I mean, there's some fascinating research that's come out that shows that that women may well have also been big game hunters, right? Mm -hmm. And isn't that super cool to know that, that this whole narrative might need to all be completely flipped but, you know, I always remain open, open to everything mm-hmm. until we have good science to show one way or the other. Mm-hmm. Dr. Jen, not to digress, but I think you would love the book. It's called When God Was a Woman. And it's all about the like hidden, dug up archaeological evidence of like civilizations and historically worshiping like female gods and like women like being or qualities traditionally associated mm-hmm. with with that side. And it's I think she's like a PhD. It's just fascinating to have the book over there. 
About three years ago, I started putting together a playlist with uplifting, inspiring, and empowering songs. I originally did this for myself because I love music of all different genres, and every time I would notice a song that just made me feel good, I would add it to my self-love playlist. And now there are over 300 songs on my Spotify self-love playlist, and these tracks are perfect for when you're getting ready, trying to hype yourself up, or going through a struggle and need a reminder for how badass you are. If you love music as much as I do, then go to maryscupoftea.com playlist to get the Spotify link. It will ask you for your email so that I can send you this self-love playlist. And full transparency, this will also put you on my email list where I send out a monthly newsletter about stuff I'm thinking about, personal things, things I don't really share on social media, and all the happenings in the Mary's Cup of Tea world. So go to maryscupoftea.com slash playlist and let's start jamming to my self-love playlist together. You said a point there at the end about remaining open-minded until we have evidence. I think that's one reason why I like following you so much because a lot of the, I guess, pushback, like the functional medicine, alternative doctors, the naturopaths, they will criticize science as being like closed-minded and like, oh, you just got to be open-minded to natural remedies. But I really see it as the opposite. I feel like that world is very closed-minded and very stuck in their ways and talk about confirmation bias and just spreading mis- and disinformation, whereas science is like, we haven't studied it yet. It might be worth studying if we had enough funding. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that it's, you're exactly correct. So alternative medicine has a very restricted view. It's almost like a religion in many ways. You fall into very, very specific sort of rules, if you will, very limited definitions of things like natural, which like really <laughs> natural is like dying from measles. Now, like, what do you mean natural, right? Like the <laughs> yeah. natural's not having a phone or a computer, right? Mm-hmm. Being on Instagram is not natural. So I think that what happens a lot in alternative medicine is they confuse biological implausibility with possibility, right? I just saw a video recently of somebody talking about salt and the important trace elements. Like, And of course, there's no significant nutritional value to any trace elements that you might find in salt. They're trace elements. It doesn't do anything for you. Yeah, it's got sodium and that's great if you want sodium or need sodium or you like the taste of sodium, you know, in your food. So they take something, an idea and completely warp it based on just, you know, sort of often very ludicrous understanding of how the human body works. But alternative medicine is absolutely the closed-minded one because I'm like, okay, so if your idea is so amazing and so easy to prove, get yourself a couple hundred thousand dollars and prove it. You know, the more obvious an answer in general, the easier it is to study, right? So I always remind people there isn't a single study from the world of naturopathic medicine or the world of chiropractic medicine that has actually been accepted as like evidence-based medicine. They're not doing research that changes the world. They're not producing vaccines. And what they're doing is largely selling unproven, unstudied pharmaceuticals, meaning supplements. Mm. Before we dive into that, could you real quick explain to me what you said about plausibility? Could you repeat that and then explain sure. to me like M5? No. So <laughs> biological, something's either plausible, meaning it could happen, or it's like impossible. So is it biologically plausible that the sun is going to drop out of orbit onto the earth? No. 
that's generally not how the field of astronomy or understanding of the uterus, the uterus, or the universe. <laughs> yeah, that's a great the Freudian. Uterus. That's a great Freudian slip. That our <laughs> understanding it doesn't fit with the biological constraints of how we understand the universe works. So that's mm-hmm. not biologically plausible. But there's biologically possible. Is it possible that we could have massive hailstorms today? Well, it's not cloudy outside, but a weird storm could blow in off the Pacific, it's possible, right? So there's as close to impossible as you can get the sun falling on the earth and maybe, maybe not possible, not possible, maybe worth studying. And so what a lot of chiropractic medicine and naturopathic medicine and alternative medicine and period coaches and all these people, they take something that's biologically implausible and twist it in a way to make it sound like it's an actual thing. One of the best examples is homeopathy. Mm-hmm. It's not possible to dilute a substance to the degree that homeopathy dilutes substances. It's not biologically plausible that something that's less concentrated would be more effective. That doesn't really fit with the laws of nature. So that's kind of what I mean by biologically implausible. But here's the thing. If you're not an expert in a field, knowing what sounds maybe right and what's implausible can be really hard to know. So that's why it takes the kind of education that the book has, having that basic knowledge so you can be like, okay, wait a minute, that's totally crazy. I saw a chiropractor recently talking about a water wand that will change the structure somehow of water so to help you make you more hydrated. Like Mm. that's biologically implausible. So that's what I mean by that. Mm -hmm. If I didn't have an eating disorder severe enough to have to go on this entire recovery journey to heal from that, I would probably be one of those people believing in a lot of that stuff only because the questioning of diet culture has also, to me, led to questioning of a lot of scientifically unstudied claims and just baseless stuff that I see on the internet. And I know you're very anti-food shaming and a lot of stuff related to that. I feel like it's all, it's all kind of connected because like you said, it's, it's a religion. Like the naturopath you might see on the internet that says that certain foods have healing powers and whatever could also be the same naturopath that is like, do XYZ with your cycle, then you will have these like godlike qualities of femininity. I don't know. Some of it's also like deeply sexist. And like that's why I think it reminds us so much of religion. Yeah. Well, it all ties into purity culture. So it's all this return to natural, this return to a pure state, which is again very strict, right? Like religions have strict rules. You got to follow the Ten Commandments. You've got to, you know, whatever, eat fish on Fridays, or you've got to not eat pork, or, you know, there's all different kinds of rules in religion, right? Because, and I'm an atheist, I may offend some people with this, but the whole point of the religion is to get you to follow it, right? The rules don't have like any other purpose except like getting you to follow the rules because they want you to be a believer. And so that's what a lot of alternative medicine is. It's about the belief and creating these basically religious constructs around food, around, and again, the words clean and pure and natural come up over and over and over again. And that's what medicine was hundreds of years ago. Medicine and religion were really the same for a very long time. They didn't know about 
germs. They thought the uterus wandered the body, like all kinds of just ideas because they didn't know. And they couldn't know because they didn't have the concept of the scientific method and the tools and the things that that we have today. And I would say that medicine has evolved slowly from there and taken the scientific method. And alternative medicine has really stayed on that pathway with these sort of like rigid rules about, oh, you need to have this because it's good for the heat in your body, or you need to have this because it's good for the cool in your body, or this this herb will work as a contraceptive, right? And you're like, well, really? So do you think that if for all of history, there was an herb that worked as contraceptive, then why do people have 10 kids? Like, Well, and also like if it was, then you would study it, then you would prove it, then it wouldn't even be alternative medicine. It would just be- medicine. Right, right. But it's sort of this idea that, that, okay, like if there really was an herb that truly could prevent pregnancy, then why did all these women get like kicked out of their family for having a kid out of wedlock? And why, like, how was this knowledge only known to a very small percentage of people, but we all know it now? So with a lot of alternative medicine, when you actually sit down and try to follow the logic, like it doesn't make any sense. Those should be really red flags for people. You know, this idea that if there's one ridiculous statement, there's going to be more. You just might not see them because it's not, not your area of expertise. And I mean, a really good example of that is Gwyneth Paltrow promoting jade eggs. And the article about it was that you could recharge the jade egg with the energy of the moon. Hmm. I'm like, really? Wow. So why don't we have like lunar panels on our roof? Like, what's up with that? <laughs> what's up with this expensive ass solar? Right. Yeah. <laughs> like everybody's got the moon, but seriously, just stuff like that. And it's hard because look, you're vulnerable and you're looking for an answer as opposed to, you know, in medicine, the answers are almost always longer because we're being truthful. Well, maybe it's going to be this, but maybe it's not going to be that. And that can enhance anxiety. It's much easier for someone to say, absolutely, 100%, this is going to work for you. So, you know, I just think it's really important for people to listen to how alternative medicine practitioners talk. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like with anything, if it's black and white, if it's extreme, it's probably not truth because everything that is true is is all in that gray area and requires so much nuance and deep explanation and exploration and conversation with a variety of, of people that have committed their lives to studying things at the expense of so much. So it's, yeah, it's sad that we're so quick to believe the the big, bold, baseless claims. Well, it's I think it's human nature, you know? There've been snake oil salesmen for a long time. Propaganda works. And that's yeah. one of the things with social media, right? You see one video and the algorithm knows, or the algorithm tells you that you should be seeing more of that. So you get the same message over and over and over again. People can't be faulted for believing it. So I always tell people, look, you know, if there was an IV vitamin, for example, mm -hmm. I, these spas that do IV vitamins are like big right now. If there was an IV vitamin that, could do all these things that people claimed, don't you think we'd be offering it to everybody in the office? Don't you think mm -hmm. it would have been like in the New York Times and in the Washington Post? And because you know what? Other medical discoveries are when there's like, wow, moments, those appear in the national news. And so, you know, if somebody in a spa in Phoenix, Arizona is the only person that has the cure. Yeah. 
They don't have the cure. (laughs) Well, it's funny because they always cite, they'll always be like, well, they don't want you to know this because the medical system makes so much money from us. And I'm like, and that med spa that's charging you $400 for an injection is not making money. No, it's classic conspiracy thinking. And it's really blaming your opposition for what you're doing yourself. It's accusing the opposition of what you're actually doing, right? Because I always say, look, everything that comes from alternative medicine, every Thing you put in your mouth, everything you inject, anything like that, it's an unproven, untested pharmaceutical. If you think about it that way, it puts it in a completely different perspective. Mm-hmm. You know, that none of these things are rigorously tested. We've just seen recently there have been some reports of terrible infections from these IV therapies and spas. I think there was a death recently, like just completely unnecessary. And there's people making all kinds of wild claims and it's hard. It's sometimes really hard for people to find the information. Even somebody who's like, I'm going to sit down and dedicate like five hours to figuring this out. So a lot of these alternative medicine practitioners are very good at search engine optimization. So if you Google something, all you see are positive things about this one thing. You'd have to know specifically how to search to actually find the medical information. And that's really frightening. Yeah. And it requires some really dense reading that most people just don't do, don't have time to do. Right. Um, And so you have someone who promises you the world and they seem really nice and they tell you they're going to cure you. And so what they get to do is in rhetoric, that's called God terms. They get to make all these promises. They get to tell you all kinds of amazing things. And so you fill in the blank that, of course, this is going to work versus someone like me who's telling you about risks, telling you about pros and cons, telling you about side effects. I have to use devil terms. And so that makes you think that my therapy is scarier than it is. So it's, mm-hmm. it's a lot of very interesting sort of branding and marketing involved. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And scientific literacy is probably one of the main things that would combat that. It's actually funny we got here naturally because I thought it would be fun to just I have like four things on my list here Uh to just say out loud that I want you to like comment on. Okay. Okay. You mentioned chiropractors earlier. Yes. What's what's your beef with chiropractors? Well, it's based apparently on teachings from a ghost. So there's that. And yeah. And it was this whole concept that the body has these subluxations throughout that can be fixed with chiropractic manipulation has never been studied. They're not allowed to prescribe medications in the United States, so they don't learn about them. And their understanding of physiology from what I've seen is not what we have. And if you have a problem with your back, a physical therapist, there are people who do evidence-based care for backs. So we have people that are really good. And of course, we see terrible injuries from people who've had their neck manipulated. I would never send someone to a chiropractor. I would never listen to advice from a chiropractor. So the idea of like, oh, your bones need to be like mm-hmm. realigned. So I have to like crack your back. Yeah, neck that's, the, to put you that's, back. that's the subluxations. Yeah, that's not a thing. It's made up. Okay. Yeah, there's no okay. science to support it at all. At Zero. all. Zero. So how is there this whole branch of what so many people view as, as medicine? I mean, there's like doctors of chiropractic and they're considered doctors and. Well, they're not doctors of medicine. They're chiropractic doctors. And so, yeah. You can be a doctor in anything. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, they govern themselves. They can't do surgery. They can't take things off you. They don't have the medical training that we have, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that people hear the word doctor and they assume the training is the same and it's not. And to make things even more challenging in the United States, there's also osteopathic medical schools. So you have DOs. DOs are physicians. And there are, I know, many fantastic DOs. They used to learn more like, 
spine manipulation stuff in the olden days in osteopathic schools, but I think that's really petered out. But there's many, many fine DOs, many fine DOs. I would have no problem going to a good DO. I mean, there's terrible medical doctors. I mean, there's medical doctors selling scammy things. But in general, chiropractic medicine is not medicine. It's not on the same level. And yeah, all this bone cracking stuff, it's... Yeah, Yeah, I'm against... Well, we're toward like the end of the episode now. So I guess I will divulge the hot goss, though maybe I should have divulged this at the beginning. But I changed my mind on chiropractors personally when one of my ex's friends got pretty drunk with us. And in the midst of that drinking, I vividly remember him saying something along the lines of like, yeah, I just crack people's backs all day and get paid a shit ton. And I don't even know if it works, but it helps them. So many people who go to chiropractors, they have to go week after week after week. There's no treatment and improvement, right? So like with a physical therapist, you go and they assess you. They you know, make sure you don't need to see, for example, a spine surgeon or a physical medical rehabilitation doctor or whatever. And then they prescribe you exercises and then they want you to come back. And so they can see how you're doing with those exercises and see mm-hmm. if you can add more things in. Mm-hmm. And so the whole goal is to graduate you to doing those exercises at home and have you improve. And it just seems that with, you know, chiropractic people just keep going because, and, you know, we know from studies that when people spend more money, they're more likely to feel better. So there's a real expensive placebo effect. So Mm -hmm. I don't refer people to chiropractors. I don't follow chiropractic advice. And it's, you know, that's kind of one of my rules of, did you hear from a chiropractor? You know, no. Yeah, yeah. Okay, next one. Your menstrual cycle gets rid of toxins. Yeah, that's a no. You, first of all, you don't have any toxins in your body. I'll just say that right now. Toxins are substances produced by plants, bacteria, or animals that are poisonous. So we don't have venom sacs. Our bodies don't produce toxins. So like a cobra bite, the cobra has a toxin. <laughs> if you get food poisoning, often that's from a toxin. And Botox is a toxin. So humans don't have toxins. You can have a toxic substance, something that's harmful, but that's different. It's a different word. So no, the point of menstruation is not to get rid of harmful substances. You have a liver and kidneys that do that for you. And if it were, how would you survive nine months in pregnancy? How could you possibly survive without your toxin-removing uterus? What about these women who have pregnant? What about, you know, in the olden days? Unborn children. Right. So so in the olden days, when and especially, you know, if you had 10 kids, you were probably pregnant 16 or 17 times given the perinatal mortality, right? So there are people who have been pregnant for years and years. So shouldn't they be dead because they didn't have their toxin removing system? I mean, and then people say, oh, it's the placenta. Really? So that's really good for the fetus then, isn't it? Right? So there's no toxins that come out from the menstrual cycle. If there were, we'd know. We would know this. Yeah. Bogus right up there with detox and diet culture. Absolutely. Okay. Do menstrual cycles sync up? Like if you hang out with fellow menstruators? No, they absolutely do not. And people are really upset by this, which I find really fascinating. But think about it. This concept reduces you to being an animal because animals have pheromones. So we actually don't have the organ in our nasal cavity that detects pheromones. So no one's actually ever convincingly proven that humans have pheromones. But then it would mean that you're like, 
you could be controlled by an outside force. Like that's very patriarchal, right? That you're like a pack. You're like, we're like a pack of animals, women, but men aren't. Like that's that's kind of problematic thinking. So Do their boners sync up? <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? No one ever says that about men. So the original idea came from a study that for the time, maybe it was okay, but it had problems. It's since been looked at by several different practitioners. Several different groups have looked at it. And there's no evidence that it exists. And there's no biological way it could because we don't make a compound that travels through the air that can affect other people. As somebody who loves math, the explanation that really made it click for me is just that it's it's a pattern and yeah. all patterns will have moments of overlapping. Absolutely. And you only remember the times they do. You don't remember yeah. the times they don't. Some people might say to me, well, what's the harm of that myth? Well, there's harm in not knowing how your body works, right? Because if you believe that to be true, then what if somebody who's an agent of disinformation starts talking about it? And you're like, yeah, I believe that. You're right. So then that gets you to spend more time with that person online and you read more about the person and then you start going deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole. I mean, that's how those things happen. People don't hear some ludicrous statement about health. Like if you get vaccinated against COVID-19, you're going to shed spike proteins. People don't hear that and jump right in. They've heard a softer thing first. You know, you get boiled by degrees. Yeah, the slippery slope is real. And also when you said like, we're not pack animals, my first reaction was like, well, to me, this is kind of an endearing idea because like my sister and I will call each other. We'll be like, hey, are you menstruating? And then I'm always sad to find out when they're not synced up. So it's like this like sisterhood vibe. But then I thought twice. And I love that you said that it's patriarchy because it treats women like these like packed animals and dehumanizes them. And it made me think of like an image of of women like so easily influenced, like such terrible monsters when they're doing this nasty, dirty thing called bleeding and men are just so good and kind for putting up with us, you know? Yeah. And that's when I'm like, okay, might be a slippery slope to some more problematic messaging just like you explained in the medical sense too. Yeah, you know, this idea that we're so feral that we can control other people. I mean, this is an ancient belief. So in the time of Hippocrates, they thought women were basically wild animals and the uterus was a wild animal within a wild animal. So how different is this idea that you can drag someone else into ovulation? You know, like some bad horror movie, right? Like Descent Part 3, Descent the Ovulator. How different is it from that? It's not. Okay, last one before we conclude. You already alluded to this. Goop. (laughs) Yeah, goop. I know it's a no for you, but but tell us why. Yeah, so celebrities aren't here to help you get better with your life. They're not. Celebrities who are invested in sort of health and wellness, because there's plenty of celebrities like Meryl Streep who go on their merry way and do their amazing jobs and don't try to sell you stuff, right? So- When people are trying to sell you stuff, they're trying to make money. And how could a celebrity know more about health than actual experts? How could Gwyneth Paltrow curate health experts in a way that actual experts can't? So it's this idea of basically making healthcare super like unattainable 
making it incredibly expensive, making it very narrow and rigid, making it very religious, right? And if you look at all the things on Goop, it has this very like all white religious type of experience, very much into the the praying at the altar of diet culture, even though they're not, you know, they always have like body positivity articles. But when Goop had a pop-up store here in San Francisco, I went to look at it and they had some of their clothes and I'm a size 10 and they had nothing that would fit me. Really, body positivity. Okay, what is this even? It's a very harmful way of, I would say, looking at health and it's, it's like anti-health really. You know, I went to the Goop conference and they had a had a medium there who was literally going through the audience and doing those cold calls where they're like, the first question they asked, so we're in a room with people who could all afford the minimum price for ticket, I think was $800, right? Did you pay this for research purposes? I did. Oh, absolutely. I went under my name, but that was the cheap ticket, right? There was also an expensive ticket, but I was like, I got to see this firsthand. It was just like being in church. It was very religious. And this research medium, research medium told us death isn't real. That's a great message. And that you can use love to bring yourself back from death. Also another interesting message. The first question she asked, you know, when these mediums do these cold calls, a room of people who can afford to spend $800 on a ticket. Has anyone here thought about buying a purse recently? <laughs> yeah. Does anyone here have a website? And everybody's like, oh, she's talking to me. And it was just the freaking circus, just like the carny <laughs> calling people in. And so, yeah, so, so Goop doesn't care about your health. They care about making money for their VC backers. This is true. Did you have to make small talk with any of these people? Just curious. Yeah. So I spoke to some people there just to kind of understand. Everybody was like praying at the altar of Gwyneth Paltrow. Like she was very aspirational for a lot of people there, like very aspirational, which I find really bizarre, but it's also stark and the food was so awful. And I mean, I live in California. You can have amazing spa food. Like it doesn't have to taste awful. So this was very bizarre in a lot of ways. And people were really into the messaging and was really fascinating the you know, the power of celebrity. Yeah. Yeah. And like you said, just that godlike cult-like following. Yeah. Okay. Last question. Is there anything that you've changed your mind about perhaps in doing research for your book, Blood? Anything that you were surprised by or found new evidence to support, like something that you used to believe? Yeah. Some of the fascinating sort of evolutionary stuff about polycystic ovarian syndrome some mm -hmm. of the genetics and things behind it and how it's just really so complex. Mm -hmm. And the more I read about it, the more I was like, oh my gosh, this is even more complex than I thought and more complex. So so that yeah. was something that, that really interested me too. So I hope those yeah. things resonate with people and I hope they learn a lot from the book. Same here. It's a really great book full of so much information and PCOS is something so many people struggle with, but don't have many answers to. So I know yeah. you have like a whole section dedicated to that. Thank you so much, Dr. Jen, for, for today, for helping us go into some of this bogus and weird stuff out there. But I'm just really grateful that people like you exist to keep us grounded. Oh, well, thank you so much. And thank you so much for having me. And I really appreciate it. It was really nice to meet you face well, as close to face to face as possible. <laughs> Likewise, I would love to meet you in person one day. Maybe we can go to a Goop conference. <laughs> <laughs>
One last thing before we farewell, my self-lovers. If you've been enjoying the Mary's Cup of Tea podcast, I would greatly appreciate it if you could leave a review on Apple or rate the show on Spotify. You can do this by searching for the show, Mary's Cup of Tea. Scroll all the way down on Apple Podcasts and you'll see stars where you can click one of the stars and leave a few kind words. It just means so much to me because I'm so behind the scenes when I'm podcasting, so I don't really get to see the impact of the show unless you leave a review. And on Spotify, there's just a button that says rate the show and it'll let you put however many stars you want. Your feedback helps the podcast grow. And as someone whose love language is words of affirmation, your kind words mean the world to me. Thank you so much for supporting the show and helping me spread the gift of self-love. I love you all so much and I will talk to you in next week's episode.